Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. These were to foreshadow the coming of the Christ. Don't let anyone judge you for not keeping these further. Those were all pointing to Jesus. And now that the substance has arrived, you no longer need to worship the shadows. The substance is here. Do you see? See, here's what grieves my heart is Jesus, he comes on this day. He knows. He knows between him and the Lord somehow, and I don't know when, I don't know how it happened, but he knows that all of this has been pointing to him all of this time. He knows that the season of Passover is about him. And we read Jesus going to Passover, celebrate the Passover throughout his life. The first time we read about it is in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. You can read this yourself later. As a young boy, 12 years old. A 12-year-old boy was considered a man by that time in the Hebrew customs. He was accountable for his own spiritual well-being, no longer under his parents' spiritual care or covering. At that point in time, as a Hebrew male at 12 years old, he was responsible for himself before God. You understand? And at 12 years old, it says that they go, he goes with his family to the Passover to celebrate it there in Jerusalem at the temple. And his family leaves once the festival, the feast is finished. And Jesus stays behind. And his parents actually go a day's journey before they figure out that Jesus isn't with them. And they go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the temple and they search high and low. Finally, on the third day, they find Jesus seated in the temple, reasoning, teaching, and asking questions of the the religious leaders there. And they say, why would you do this to us, Jesus? And what did Jesus say? He said this. He said, you should have known when you came looking for me that I would be in my father's house. Some versions say, you should know that I need to be about my father's work, my father's business. You should have known where to find me. That was the first recorded Passover that we have, but the first recorded Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, once he started to actually walk around the countrysides ministering as a rabbi, we find in John chapter two, and he makes a whip of cords, and he goes into the temple the same way, and he's whipping that cord in the air, and he's driving out those who are buying and selling in the temple. Why? Why is he doing this? Because they're making a mockery of the picture that God intended to point to his arrival. And so he comes and he cleanses the temple and he says, you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. And here in this third account, he's, again, he's driving out the people, overturning the tables. And he said, you've perverted what God wanted in this picture, this foreshadowing, this this appointment, this rehearsal, and it's all wrong. And so I need to drive you out because this has no place in my father's house. Passover was about Jesus, and he knew it, and so he went to extreme lengths to drive those people out. Now, this is how wicked it had become. Remember, you saw those courtyards called the courtyard of the Gentiles, yes? And the high priest would rent out booths or tables where people could buy and they could sell. And this is what it was like as a worshiper in those days. Imagine a young boy, 12, 13 years old, coming into Jerusalem for the very first time. 
bringing with him maybe a sacrifice of a pigeon or a dove because that's all he could afford. And so he brings with him his sacrifice. He wants to be right with God. He wants to meet with the Lord. He knows the word says, if you come to the presence of God, you cannot come empty-handed. And so here's this young boy, first worshiper, and he's coming with his sacrifice, and he comes to the temple grounds, and he brings his sacrifice to be inspected by the priests. And the priests take that little bird, and they inspect it, and they find some sort of fault with it. They say, this this sacrifice is blemished. This sacrifice just won't do. You need to go over to the table over there. They will sell you a sacrifice. So what does that young boy do? He takes his bird, and he walks over to the other table. And he brings that bird, and he brings it to that merchant. He gives that bird to that merchant. The merchant says, I'll give you 25% of what this bird is worth. He sells him that bird. He says, here, this is a fit, a suitable sacrifice. And he sells him another bird, another pigeon, or another dove. And says, here, this one has been pre-inspected. This one is safe for you to sacrifice. And he sells him that bird for 10 to 15 times what it's worth. And that little boy takes that back just been completely robbed. Here's a little boy who has a heart that wants to worship, that wants to bring his offering to the Lord, and the merchants and the priests and the people in the temple have taken advantage of that boy. Now, it doesn't stop there. That little boy brings that little bird. He sits that little bird down and says, here, I'm told that you can sell me a sacrifice. Yes, I can do that. He sells him the bird. They pay him back in Roman money. And he says, okay, now you need to buy a bird from me. Well, you can't use Roman money to buy the bird from me. You have to use temple money. So you know what? You're going to have to exchange your money for temple money. Go right over there to that table. So the little boy takes his money over to that table. He says, I need money so that I can buy my sacrifice. He says, well, how much do you have? Plops down the money. The exchange rate was 25%. Can you imagine going across the border and having to pay 25% to exchange your money? So not only is he charging 10 to 15% more for the bird, he's losing money in the exchange because I can't buy it in the Roman money he just gave me. I got to exchange it for temple money. Then I got to take the temple money back over and buy my bird. This is what was happening on the temple grounds. It had become not a place where it was beautiful as to be a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of cross, the, the cross and Jesus, the lamb to come. It wasn't that appointed feast. It wasn't that appointment with God. It wasn't that dress rehearsal. It was a, make, a way to make a buck. And Jesus is grieved because people are there who really want to worship God. And they're surrounded by people who just want to make a buck. So what does Jesus do? He overthrows those tables. And he chases all those people out. He says, you have no business being here. You've perverted what God meant for good. And I wonder sometimes if we haven't done the same thing in the Christian church today with how commercialized Christianity has become. Look at these screenshots from these articles. I just did a quick Google search. I'm not like a superman with this. Look at this. Study. Religion contributes more to the U.S. economy than Facebook, Google, and Apple combined. Let that sink in just for a second. Those are three of the largest companies in our stock market and religion. Now, to be fair, this isn't just Christianity. This is all religions. Okay, and to be fair, this includes things like hospitals that are owned by denominations. Okay, but this study found that religion contributes more to the U.S. economy 
than all of those three companies combined. Look at this next slide. You see how this is broken down here? $1.2 trillion annually. Show the next slide, if you will. Is there another slide? There you go. Religion may be bigger business than we thought. Here's why. And it was that, that next slide. So you can kind of get the picture here, right? And we read things about Jesus coming in and overthrowing money changers' tables and driving out those who bought and sold sacrifices because they're fleecing the people. But I wonder if we're engaging in the same things today. You know, we think that when we go to a concert, that we make a choice like going to a concert, a Christian concert, or a worship concert, that that really means that we're there with the Lord, right? Does it? You know, some of those Christian speakers, some of those Christian speakers and some of those Christian artists are not even believers. You know what they do? They look at you and they say, I can make a buck out of that person. And so if I have to play a part from the stage, if I have to say some words that tickle their ears, if I have to sing some songs that talk about a God I don't even believe in, but I can make a buck off of them, I'm gonna do it. This is the facts, right? And I'm not naming names. I'm just saying you have to be careful because Jesus was not pleased. He walks into this place, and if you're taking notes, you'll take your first point here. With righteous indignation, he's angry at what they had done to the church or to the temple or to the religion or to the picture that he was painting. And we, as Christians, again, I'm not saying don't do these things. What I'm saying is if you're engaged in these things and you think these things make you right with God, you're wrong. Because we go to concerts and we go to conferences and we go to camps and we take Christian cruises and we take Christian vacations and we go see Christian speakers, but none of those things make you Christian. None of those things make you right with God. And so in the midst of this, there was a lot of religious activity going on when Jesus arrived. People were busy, but none of it made them right with God. The temple grounds were crowded, 500,000 people, 250,000 sacrifices, buying and selling and exchanging. There was a lot of religious activity, but Jesus wasn't in the midst of any of it. And if we are not careful in our churches today, we can be very busy about a lot of things and not even realize that Jesus isn't here anymore. And if Jesus isn't here, I don't want to be here. I don't care how many people show up to a conference or how many people go on a cruise or a camp. If Jesus isn't here, I don't want to be here. So what does? If that doesn't make you right with God, what does make you right with God? It's simple. Jesus said you must be born again. Your life has to have changed. And so at the center of the Hebrew religion, at the center of the Hebrew worship, there was that altar, that place that they would come, that, that place where they would bring their sacrifices, that place where they would bring their offerings, that place where they would plead with God to take away their sin, to cover their sin. And at the center of the Christian faith is an altar as well. But you don't bring a goat or a lamb or a bullock or a bird. You know what you bring? You bring your life before him. You die to yourself. You come to an altar. Again, it's not an altar made of stone. It's a spiritual place, a place where you and you alone can meet with God, that place that nobody knows about but you. We might call this an altar, and maybe, yes, this is an altar. This is a place where you can come and you can decide to die to self, but that altar, your altar is anywhere you make it. 
Anywhere you choose to die to self and put aside your own flesh so that you can live for the glory of God, that's the place where I want you to be confident to go to. That's the place where I want you to learn to approach on your own. You don't need me to guide you into that place. You don't need a worship team up here worshiping to guide you into that place. You don't need a Bible study to guide you into that place. You go to that place because you're invited by God and God shed his blood. Jesus shed his blood so you can enjoy that place, that altar. You die to self. That's what makes you really Christian. Not the camps, not the concerts, not the cruises. What makes you a believer is when you come to Christ and you say, I'm done. I'm done living this way. Listen to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, they've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. They say, no more. I can't do this anymore, God. I'm tired of living this way. And so that man is dead. I'm no longer that person. That guy's dead and gone. Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live in faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm not living anymore. It's Christ living in me. This is what makes you a believer. You come to that altar. You take up your cross. You follow after him. You become a living sacrifice, as Romans would say. A living sacrifice. Do you know why it's difficult to be a living sacrifice? Because living sacrifices have a tendency to want to get up and walk away when it gets tough. How many of you have done that? Lord, I, I'm done living this life. I'm done living this way. I, I'm done living after the flesh. I'm giving all of this up. I'm dying to self. I'm laying this all down. And then something difficult in your life happens. And all of a sudden, you want to get up off the altar and walk away. Did Jesus get up off the altar and walk away when you needed him? The answer is simple. He went to that cross because he knew you had to come with something in hand. You couldn't come empty-handed, and whatever you could bring was not enough. It was not sufficient, so he came that sufficiency for you. So this text says he comes in during this season of Passover into the temple, this place which is supposed to be a backdrop for what was coming, this this. Passover season, which was supposed to be a picture of the lamb that was to come, and he overthrows the money changers' tables, and he drives out those who are buying and selling. He says, this is wrong. This isn't the way it should be. And then it says specifically of those who sold pigeons. Did you catch that? He singles those people out. Why? Because those people were praying on the poorest. If you were wealthy, if you had flocks, you could bring a sheep. You could bring a lamb. You could bring a ram. You could bring a pure and spotless lamb to, to be your sacrifice. But if you were poor, if you didn't even have a lamb to spare, you would bring a bird. And these people are even taking what little the poor had and using it themselves. And God was angry. Jesus was angry, and he overthrows those things. And now, if you're taking notes, your next point is he speaks forth this rightful proclamation and he says, you've taken my father's house, which was meant to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of robbers. Now, he's quoting here from two texts. One is in Isaiah chapter 56. Let me read to you that first. Because I want you to understand what God's heart was for the temple. Because what the Hebrews had made it was not God's heart. This was God's heart for the temple. Let me read this to you, Isaiah 56. And the foreigners... You know what that means? It means people who aren't Jews, Gentiles, people like most of, the, most of us in this room, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, 
to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in the house of prayer. What does he call it there? A house of prayer. Those foreigners who want to come and be a part of the the family of God, those people who really, truly want to seek the Lord, who want to meet with me at the altar, when they come, I want them to find joy in this house of prayer, that their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on the altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples, not just the Jews. Again, by this time, the Jews practiced, the way they practiced their religion had basically locked out anyone who was not Jewish. The the Gentile could only come into the court of the Gentile until they were converted to Judaism. They could only come into the court of the Gentile. And that court was filled with shopkeepers and merchants and money changers and people taking advantage of the situation. There was no place for anyone to come and to be joined to the Lord. And I bring this up, why? Because again, if we are not extremely careful, our churches can become the same way. See, these churches are not meant to be a country club of believers, believe it or not. This is supposed to be a place where people can approach the presence of God and be made right in the presence of God where they can bring their burdens and their guilt and their shame and be made whole. But if we start looking at the lost and despising the lost and locking out the lost, how will they ever come to know Christ? Be careful that the same conditions and atmosphere does not take over this church that ruled the Jews during that day. Money changing and locking out the lost. How terrible a condition the people were. Now let me finish this. It says here in verse 8, And the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's a beautiful picture because God says in this temple, at this mount, at this place where my glory, my tangible physical glory shall reside, I want the outcast to feel welcomed. I want the lost to come in. I want those who feel far from God to be brought near to God. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save who? The lost. Jesus said, I didn't come to find the the well. I came for the sick. The sick and the needy, those are the people who I came for. And if we're not careful, we're going to make it so that our church does not feel welcoming to the lost, to the sick, and to the needy. This temple should be a house of prayer. Now, I want you to notice this. If you're taking notes, you can write this on your other part. This is not in the outline. won't be on your screen. But notice he did not say that this house will be called a house of worship. He didn't say that, did he? Now, Does worship take place at the temple? Yes, but he didn't want it to be known as a house of worship. He wanted it to be known as a house of prayer. And how much of your time when you come to this sanctuary, to this congregation, is spent in worship versus prayer? I wonder. How much of your time in your own personal time with the Lord is spent worshiping or listening to worship music as opposed to prayer? This place should be known as a house of prayer, not worship. You know what else it didn't say? As difficult as it is for a pastor to say this, it did not say that this house should be known as the house of the word. It didn't say that. The temple was a place where they came to meet with God, where they came to bring their burdens, where they came to be cleansed of sin. It wasn't specifically a house of teaching. That was to take place in the synagogues. 
This temple is a place where you come to meet with God. It wasn't even a house of word. You know what else it wasn't? It wasn't a house of good works. It was to be a house of prayer. Why? Why is it so much easier for us to worship than it is to pray? Why is it so much easier for us to read the Bible than it is to pray? Why is it so much easier to do some good works or to help in Sunday school or to help be a VBS crew leader than it is to pray? Do you know why? Because prayer is so frightening and intimidating to Satan. He will do whatever he can to keep you from prayer, even if that means worship or the word or works. Why? Let me tell you why. Because when you come to God in prayer, you are coming to him in hopes of communicating with the God of all creation. And when you begin communicating with the God of all creation, do you know what happens? You begin to form a relationship. And the more you communicate with the God of all creation, the stronger that relationship becomes. And eventually, that relationship develops into intimacy. Where that moment where you know what someone else is thinking before they even say it. That moment where you really truly understand someone's heart as though it's your own. And that intimacy, if that intimacy lasts long enough, will eventually become security. That place where you feel so at peace and so at rest in someone's presence. It's almost like you're there by yourself. See, the enemy does not want for you to experience that kind of intimacy and security. So he will tempt you with whatever he can, even if that is the word or worship or works to keep you from God's presence because he does not want you to know God the way God knows you. Some of your relationship with the Lord is kind of like a long distance relationship today. You realize, understand that long distance relationships, those are very difficult to make work, right? Why? Because you're not in each other's presence long enough. Why? Because you lose touch with that person. You forget that person, what they're really like. You forget what makes them tick. You forget what their heart is like. Satan has baited some of you into a place where that intimacy has been broken and you no longer feel secure. You no longer feel like no matter what happens in your life, no matter what trial might come, that you're going to be okay because God is with you and you know his heart. That is only that place, that relationship which becomes intimacy, that communication which becomes relationship, which becomes intimacy, which becomes security, that only happens in the presence of the Lord. And Jesus comes on the, on the scene and he quotes Isaiah chapter 56 and he says, this place should be a place of intimacy with God. And you're robbing people. How can this be? How can you do this? I'm so grieved because a sign of a powerful church is a sign where a church will pray. And so when we look at the health of our body and we take a step back and we say, what is this house known as? I wouldn't say that this house would be known as a house of prayer. I just wouldn't. And I, I'm as guilty. I'm, I'm at the front of the line because I'm called to lead. House of worship, yes, amazing worship. Money invested in lights and sound and instruments. Amazing worship. Word, I spend probably 20 hours each time I prepare a sermon. The moment I go home today, I already have my notes printed out to start studying for the next time I preach. Even though that might be two weeks from now. I start right away. House of the Word, yeah, maybe. 
house where people are being fed and we're giving out clothing and we're ministering in the community and we're helping drug addicts come off the streets. Yes, yes, works, yes. House of prayer? I don't know. I don't think we can say that. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.